You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. In early October, a 40-foot T-Rex dinosaur skeleton named Stan brought in a $31.8 million at a Christie's auction. But unlike the hectic action-paced auctions of the past, it had to work around the pandemic restrictions and retrofitted for digital audiences by live streaming the sale. Since the outbreak of the pandemic, nearly all consumer-facing industries, from fashion to food, have been hit hard as COVID-19 drastically affected supply chains and disrupted manufacturing around the world. Not exempt from the havoc is the art market, which has similarly been facing disruptions as COVID-19 shuttered most galleries, fairs, and auction houses more than six months ago. Major international fairs like Art Basel had to convert to an online-only format featuring virtual viewing rooms. Auction houses like Sotheby's and Christie's shifted their live sales to digital and created new kinds of web-only formats to drive a much larger portion of sales online. Though online sales were growing before the pandemic, digital-only auctions have boomed in 2020. Some say this forced break could be more than a breather for the art world. After years of kicking and screaming against the technological tide, what might emerge from this crisis is a more business-ready and sustainable art market. Here to discuss what's going on in the art market today and how it's shaping up for a post-pandemic future is my guest, Annie Wang. Annie is head of marketing at Artnet, a leading end-to-end technology platform connecting the world's collectors, institutions, and galleries to business-critical data and information. Prior to Artnet, Annie led marketing at Sotheby's for top-grossing verticals including impressionist, modern, and contemporary art. As an expert in the highest end of fine arts, Annie has marketed artwork totaling over $5 billion, including landmark masterpieces such as New Couchet by Amadeo Modigliani, which set a record for the most expensive work ever sold by Sotheby's. Annie also co-founded a limited edition print company and led marketing at Wright, the celebrated design auction house. Welcome to the luxury item, Annie. Thank you, Scott. It's so great to be here with you. I just love your podcast series. It's really a must listen for me. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the kind words. And um, I want to talk about Artnet. I mean, we'll, we'll circle back to the whole art market shortly, but uh, I actually do follow Artnet on Twitter. I have for the past year as a neophyte in the art world. That's where I get my art news and I find it the best of, uh, best of the bunch. Tell me, what is, so what does Artnet do? So Artnet is a end-to-end platform for the art world online. And we really were on the vanguard of um, making art as democratic and as transparent as possible. So it was founded in 1989, uh, 30, 31 years ago now by Hans wow. Neuendorf um, with the cornerstone product, the Artnet price database. So the price database, you know, um, has been compared to like the Kelly Blue Book of art prices. It's probably difficult for us to imagine now, but you know, 35 years ago or so, there was no way to find out the value of art. You had to basically guess. You quite literally had to go to cocktail parties and ask around. Uh, There was a a very real phenomenon of um, dealers, you know, buying from one gallery in in one in the same building and flipping it to another gallery in the same building. I mean, it really was like the wild west because there was no standardized pricing. Um, and so Artnet changed all of that by uh, putting the prices together in a comprehensive way. So today we work with 
almost 2000 auction houses to register their prices. Our clients are, you know, all of the big auction, auction houses, but also like the IRS, NAFTA, every wealthy collector in the world. Um, and from there, we expanded to galleries. We have a gallery network where thousands of galleries from around the world upload their inventory onto Artnet so that it can be viewed by our collector base. Um, we do our own online auctions and we also have Artnet News, which is the most widely read uh, media site for news. Its traffic is actually larger than our top three competitors combined. So we really do have this large audience that is very attractive to you know some of the other people that you've interviewed. Um, when you go onto Artnet News, you can see that our advertisers are like you know, Cartier, Graf Diamonds, Tiffany. Uh, there's a real affinity between us and the luxury market. So I'm really happy to be speaking with you. So are the uh, subscribers mostly on the dealer and auction house side or are they collectors? It runs the gamut. And I think that's something that's unique in the art world is that the the collector, particularly the serious collector is is very often a business person too. Um, and so I would say that we have a, pretty wide range. And, and I would confidently say that there's pretty much nobody who deals seriously in art that we're not talking to. When Artnet launched, I would imagine the dealers probably weren't too thrilled about that. They, they were, were not probably... too thrilled about that. They absolutely <laughs> were not, Scott. You know, one very prominent dealer who will remain unnamed uh, and is still in business today uh, took Hans to lunch and said, what are you doing? You're killing the golden goose. <laughs> What's great about it is also Artnet is one of those digital companies that survived the the first dot-com bust. Yes, that's true. Uh, we actually IPO'd, you know, very early and are publicly traded in Germany. And we have been online longer than anybody else. You know, the only news publication online that is older than Artnet News is Slate. Hmm. And when you think about it, there aren't too many publicly traded companies, art, you know, art companies. Now that um, Sotheby's has been taken private, I think we're essentially the only major player that's still publicly traded. So let's talk about what's going on in the art world. You know, the crisis has forced galleries, auctions and fairs to turn into virtual, to turn to these virtual solutions. And the art world has been operating in a market that has proved pretty resistant to embracing online solutions. And there's this sense that the effects of the virus have accelerated what needed to happen in the art world anyway. So why has the art world been so stubbornly slow to embrace the digital realm? You know, it's been slow for a few good reasons. One, art is unlike other luxury products, although it is the ultimate luxury product. Um, because it's one of a kind, you know, we don't have SKUs and the, the price is typically very high. It's also a relationship business. You know, there's not that many people in the world who can spend tremendous, tremendous amounts of money on a single painting, you know, a Picasso at $20 million, there's only so many qualified buyers for that. And so, you know, Sotheby's and Christie's and other art, art companies, galleries um, have been slow to embrace digital because they really haven't needed to in the past. It very much was a pick up the phone, go to a party kind of business. So what changed? 
<laughs> you know, I think a lot of it, to be honest with you, is about reducing operational costs and creating efficiency in businesses. Increasingly, um, you are seeing people enter the art business who have not spent their careers in art. You know, when I was at uh, Sotheby's, I joined with a brand new CEO, Tad Smith, who brought in a brand new CMO, David Goodman. Um, and, and they came in after Dan Loeb did a activist takeover essentially of the company and wanted to change its direction. I think Dan uh, referred to Sotheby's as a old master in need of restoration. And, <laughs> and you know, that's, that's a little mean, but also not unfair. Um, there are efficiencies that technology can create that are absolutely essential for art to continue to be a robust market in the kind of economy that we have now and also with the kind of generational shift that we're seeing. Um, between the large players, you know, Sotheby's and Christie's, they very much look at what each other is doing and sort of go toe to toe on that. Christie's had entered online sales a bit earlier than Sotheby's had. Sotheby's actually did not launch them um, until I was there in 2016. It's very, very difficult to believe, Scott, you know, that you couldn't bid for art online at Sotheby's prior to, to 2016. Um, and I, I would caveat that by saying that they did do some version of online sales um, at some brief point in the past, you know, they also very briefly had a partnership with eBay and even Amazon, you know, like in the oh, early aughts. Right. I think they've, they've tried things, but the most effective way to sell high-end art for these companies uh, is truly through relationships. And that works great, I think, for boomers, um, for, for a generation mm -hmm. that are not millennials, uh, right. but I think that we we really need to shift with the times. Yeah, it's just like the advertising business. The Mad Men days are long gone. The three martini lunches and building you know relationships that way, things have changed, and it just seemed you know it was natural that the art world would come next. Yes. So you know, speaking of traditions, you know, we're starting to see traditions changing fast outside the art world. You know, the online retail sector is expected to continue to grow more than eighty-five percent in the next four years increasing its total market share from like 14 to 22%, but online sales within the art market lag behind. I think it's like 9% of the market share, but 61% of high net worth collectors said that they've used Instagram as a starting point to buy art. So could a shift to online sales be both permanent and transformative for the art market, even its savior? I think it's absolutely going to be permanent. I don't think that, um, you know, the digital revolution in art is going to slow down after the pandemic. I think it's interesting, you know, you bring up Instagram, that's part of the cultural shift inside of art. You know, a, a great writer for Artnet News, Tim Schneider said that popularity has replaced rarity as the quality collectors look for. And that's in large part because of Instagram. You know, it used to be that nobody really knew what you have and you weren't quite able to signal your lifestyle in the way that Instagram now allows you to signal your lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're seeing a shift away from, you know, categories like let's say old masters. 15, 20 years ago, old masters was the category to collect, you know, you weren't necessarily buying contemporary art. And now you look at the incredible prices that artists like Cause is bringing in. You know, he he is an artist um, 
who I'm sure you and your audience have seen. And he's yeah. very recognizable because he does a lot of collaborations. And he also uses this very distinctive um, quality of, of imitating like the Simpsons, for example, you know, right. in his art, like cartoonish really illustration. Right. Um, he's very Instagrammable. He's very Instagrammable. Yes. And, and so you are seeing, you know, an incredible rise in certain categories because of Instagram. Yeah. And it seems that the trade is, is increasingly comfortable with putting content online, you know, such as background information on the artist and informative videos and potential virtually virtual reality generates some excitement too. So do you think the art market can sort of become this click and buy friendly realm as other, as other industries? Yeah, it's getting there. You know, we're a little slower to it, but it's absolutely getting there. And this is where the similarity between art and luxury products is, is absolutely real. Um, people want to hear a story. You know, people want to feel emotionally connected to what they're buying. They increasingly want to feel emotionally connected to the artist. And so artist stories, as you pointed out, is really important. Um, and we now have so many different channels to share that. Whereas before, you know, what did we really have? We had a one-to-one -one relationship with a salesperson and we had an auction catalog that not that many people received. Yeah. So what new strategies and tactics are galleries using these days to sustain their businesses during this time? How are they keeping collectors connected to their artists and programming? There are some galleries that are doing it better than others. Um, every gallery right now is taking a really, really good look at their own website and thinking about what to do there. Um, they, just like any luxury brand, really need a digital flagship. And I would say that galleries like David Zwerner have done a tremendous job creating an immersive, experiential website for art online um, in a way where you know, it, it really does as much as you know, something 2D can do, mimic the richness of their, their gallery spaces. Um, I think that smaller galleries, Scott, are having a hard time because it's expensive to do things like that. You know, and it's, it's expensive to be on aggregators like Artnet Galleries. Every gallery that can you know, afford to be, I think would like to be on a platform like ours because there is an explorability that way. We do a lot of marketing for them. Mm -hmm. um, we have a captive collector base. And, and I think right now galleries are really looking at what kind of aggregator they're part of, whether you know it's, it's ours or a lot of fairs have gone online, those work as well. Um, and also their own websites. I think that, <laughs> you know, it's, it's very noisy. It's noisy. And I think that there are some galleries that are sort of trying to maybe sit it out, conserve their energy and resources and wait for the storm to pass. I want to jump back to the, the social media because I've been thinking about this. You know, it probably wasn't that long ago that artists were, were limited by the ways in which they could reach potential audiences and had to rely on some middle person to sell their goods and gain access to a show, you know, to show their work. Now with social media, you know, particularly with Instagram, which we discussed, it gives these young artists plenty of exposure to build and build a wider audience. So are you seeing more artists communicating with collectors directly to sell their work through social platforms like Instagram? And, um, you know, do you think the future of art world is more direct to consumer? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a number of artists who have built incredibly successful careers for themselves because of Instagram. 
um, they're also very, very savvy business people and you don't always get that combination. You know, the benefit of a gallery, particularly a good gallery, is that they will help build a market for you. They'll get you into the hands of the right collectors. Um, they, they obviously, you know, do the organizational work for you, like create exhibitions, create your marketing materials, et cetera. But when I think about an artist who um, has done a tremendous job marketing herself through Instagram, I think of someone like CJ Hendry. She does these really beautiful photorealistic drawings uh, that she sells through Instagram. You know, you could get a little print for like $600 mm -hmm. or you could get a larger work for $180,000. And she has also expanded her practice into creating art spaces where she charges, you know, like a fee to come into a super Instagrammable like bouncy castle that she created in Dumbo. Um, and I, I think that that's really, really impressive. I think that a lot of artists are able to use this channel to create a career for themselves that they might not have with a gallery because you have to remember a gallery is not just about one artist. Um, a gallery has to champion many people who are all competing for attention. And so if an artist is able to take the reins of their own career and manage it uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> competently, this social media is, is quite a powerful way for them to do so. Yeah. And it sounds like they're taking the same business model of consumer brands, the direct to consumer brands now that you know, not only are you know, they connecting one on one, but they're also telling stories. Yeah, absolutely. You get to know them as people and there is a richness to their content that I think is not always present in, in gallery content. You know, galleries very often like to show things, of course, finished. Um, and with a gallery, you know, they, they have a whole roster of artists. You don't necessarily get to have that deep experience with one individual. It's, it's, it's almost in a way like Glossier, right? Glossier is not Estee Lauder where they have 1 million mm -hmm. products. They just right. have a, a set of products and you really understand it. And they have one personality, you know, Emily Weiss. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it's very much the same philosophy. Buyers age between like 40 and 64 still represent the biggest segment for dealers. I think they're counting like 62% of all buyers in 2019. A recent art market report that I was reading showed that these high net worth millennials are now the fastest growing constituency of collectors. And at the top of the end of the market, they buy more art and spend more on it than any other demographic. What is behind the surprising affinity of millennials to the art market? And how do they see and buy and collect differently? I'm a millennial and I think that I can tell you part of it is just getting older, you know, and, and having more money to, to be able to engage with art. Um, but we are inherently really, really different than our parents in terms of what we look for, not just in art, but in, in all of our experiences. You know, I think that a older generation like baby boomers, um, they actually love thresholds. You know, they love being told no, because for a high net worth individual, they're not really told no a lot in a lot of parts of their lives. And when you go to a top gallery um, and you walk in the door, I think that boomers kind of love that experience of like, you know, the, the slightly intimidating um, entrance, the, the sort of bitchy, beautiful girl at the front desk, <laughs> you know, and, and Sotheby's and Christie's provide a, a somewhat similar experience with the uniform doorman, the mm -hmm. incredibly impressive spaces on the Upper East Side and in Rockefeller Center. And I think that 
older people kind of love that. Mm -hmm. um, and you really, at, at the top of the game, you have to prove yourself to get a work of art, not so dissimilarly to the way you sort of have to prove yourself to the Hermes salespeople before they'll offer you a Birkin. I don't think millennials want to put up with that, though. Um, for, for us, we really value convenience. We value a certain level of egalitarianism. We also value um, anonymity in a different way, although you know, older generations in the art collecting world definitely value their anonymity. But I, I, don't, I don't think we so much want to feel like we have to prove ourselves. And that's why online is such a powerful space for millennials. Um, because when you buy something online, it's not strictly true, but it, it's sort of like, okay, it doesn't really matter who you are. You can pay for this piece, right? There are still galleries that will, will attempt to vet you before they sell you anything uh, via PDF or whatever. But on, you know, Artnet auctions, anyone can buy anything from us. Just put in your credit card information, you know? And I think that millennials just really appreciate that ease. So you think they're, millennials are forcing sort of democratization of, uh, of the art world? I do, I do. Um, I think that we just have a, a different sense of values. You know, exclusivity to us is not quite as important, for example, as convenience. What type of art are they buying? Are they buying contemporary art, impressionist, modern art, old masters, 19th century? I know you're not going to answer old masters. So what are, what are millennials buying? Unfortunately, for the impressionist market, which was long a stalwart of, of the secondary market, um, they're not really buying impressionist pieces. They like are what? definitely, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead, Scott. No, I was just saying why, like what is, what appeals to them? Yeah, so it's definitely contemporary art. That's what they're buying. Um, right. And they also dabble a fair amount in prints, but prints is essentially, you know, 20th, 21st century art. Um, you see them buying a lot of artists like Daniel Arsham or Mirakami um, or a cause again, you know, and these are also artists, interestingly, that do a lot of brand collaborations, you know, like Daniel Arsham has worked with everyone from Disney to Adidas to Dior. Uh, and that didn't used to be something that serious artists do, particularly not serious artists who, you know, really want to build a, a market for themselves, but it's something that millennials kind of like. And so, you know, we, we also look for some of the same things that, that our parents did. You know, pop art is a big collecting category for millennials because I think that these images are just simply iconic and, and will forever be part of, you know, our, our spiritual heritage, like Warhol. Right. Um, but like Keith Haring. Keith Haring, exactly, yeah. exactly. And you see them buying a lot of street art and street art, you know, good street art still does very much echo, uh, you know, pop philosophy and, mm -hmm. you know, Keith Haring. Um, I, I would love to be able to say that they are buying things outside of contemporary art because they are, but it's, you know, watches, wine, cars, uh, prints, and they also buy a lot of design. Um, lifestyle is is so important to millennials creating the entire ecosystem around yourself you know which includes furniture and you you see design doing very very well on the secondary market with collectors who are millennials it seems like they're interested you know they're interested in contemporary art because it, you know that it tends to tell a social statement absolutely you know everybody wants to be relevant and surround themselves with relevant things and people 
you know, auction houses are starting to branch out from traditional fine art, categ fine art categories to court these young buyers. Last year, Christie's had this sale offering a mashup of, you know, Hermes bags, a Spalding basketball, I think it was, a pinball machine, and artist design Supreme skateboard decks and, and others. So it brought in like $2 million. Um, and Sotheby's also organized the sale uh, of 278 Supreme skate decks that was snapped up by, I think it was like an 18 year old for close to a million dollars. And Sotheby's also had this Michael Jordan's rare, you know, Air Jordan sale. Will we be seeing more of these types of auctions centered around popular personalities and streetwear? I think you're gonna see more of them. I'm not sure that they're going to be here to stay in the mid to long term. Um, and, and that is simply because the goal here, or at least I don't know about the goal, I think the dream here really for these auction houses is to use these categories almost as like a gateway drug, right? These are very approachable categories um, where you can enter into a Sotheby's or Christie's where it's otherwise a, a bit of an intimidating experience and hopefully you can kind of usher these these new buyers into other categories, whether that's watches and wine or fine art. Um, but these sales will continue as long as streetwear and as long as sneakers are a robust market. But I, I can't tell you, you know, how long that will be for. And, you know, think about the gallery business. It also seems, you know, galleries have been extremely focused on attracting and retaining the attention of millennials. So do you think the gallery business model as it currently stand, is, stands is set up to engage the millennial collector? Gallery businesses um, are, are probably not set up extremely well for a number of different reasons that, that don't necessarily have to do with the galleries themselves, particularly galleries in major cities. We just wrote a piece on Artnet News about why landlords won't just lower their rent, you know, so that a gallery can can stay inside its space rather than be evicted. Mm -hmm. And and there's truly a number of, <laughs> on the landlord side, very good reasons not to do that. Um, you know, it, the gallery business is so difficult. I think the galleries that are really really successful are the ones that have an incredible website. And I'll tell you why because. Millennials so rarely these days stumble upon anything. We're researchers. You know, we like to look at things online and then go to the thing to make sure that it's worth our time. You know, we, we are the generation of Netflix and chill. Like we like to right. stay home. And mm -hmm. so I think that a gallery, if they really want to do well with millennials, will have an incredibly engaging website where they make their events very, very clear. They make their exhibitions very, very clear. Um, and also that they give some sense of their space because a lot of millennials who will show up will want to snap a picture of themselves, you know? Right. And, and by the way, these are not just passers through. These are also serious people with money. They, they want to take a picture of themselves and they're on Instagram it too. Um, so galleries have to get the digital piece right in order to then build the relationship with the millennial who walks through the front door. So do you think that'll happen when things start getting back to the normal? I think that's absolutely going to happen. You know, we work with a, an incredible creative agency uh, called Other Means. And I said, you know, guys, are you going out of business or what? Because so many agencies are right now. It's very difficult, as you know, Scott. Um, and they said, no, we have more we have more business than ever. Every gallery is conting us 
you know, right now to revamp their website. So I think that this is actually a healthy jumpstart for galleries. I read a figure that of the $197 billion spent globally on art at auction from 2008 to 2019, only $4 billion was on art by women. That's less than the total spent on works by Pablo Picasso alone. And artworks by women represented a mere 2% of global spending at auction in the last decade. Why do female artists remain at a severe disadvantage in both the commercial market and institutional representation? It's, it's sexism, pure and simple, and it's the, the legacy of sexism, pure and simple. Um, you know, women have not historically had access to creating art because they were, you know, busy at home doing the washing and the cooking and raising the children. And when you look at a lot of art um, created by women, so just to take for one example, like Mary Cassatt, uh, the Impressionist painter, you know, she painted interior scenes. She painted a lot of mothers and children because that was her own lived experience. Um, I think that now because women have equal access, more or less, you know, things could be improved to the, the life that men have had all, all these millennia. I hope to see that change. Um, and I, I think it will change. I think that institutions, you know, like museums have really opened their eyes to the importance of diversifying their collection. Um, and I, I think that there is increasingly attention paid to female artists, for example, like um, Helen Frankenthaler, who is a contemporary of the abstract expressionists and whose work is truly just as mind-blowingly incredible. You know, you really see her secondary market on the rise. She sells for tremendous amounts of money now, whereas she didn't maybe five years ago. There is a revisiting to the past, but you can't change the past. Um, so, so all we can do is go forward in the future and to hope that, you know, dealers champion their female artists as much as they've been championed their male artists. Well, it seems if millennials are driving the business right now, they're going to be forced to change. Absolutely. And, you know, the male buyer base has historically, I'm sorry, the buyer base has historically been male, very, very male, particularly in auctions. And, you know, when you look at simple consumer behavior, I mean, women tend to have an affinity for female things. And this may apply to art as more women become comfortable buying at auction. Um, I think that you're going to see them being drawn potentially to different work than, than men are drawn to. Um, of course, you know, great art draws all people. And so it'll be interesting to see where it goes. So what are the, what, what do you like these days? What are some of the new art or some of the new art trends that you're seeing? I think the ones that you've mentioned, Scott, you know, the, the D to C phenomenon is really, really interesting. There's an account I follow on Instagram called see you next Thursday. And I actually, I don't know who runs it, but the concept is really simple. Every Thursday, um, the person who runs the account puts up a work of art, typically by an unknown artist and you bid in the comment section. And some of these pieces sell for thousands of dollars and the buyers typically make good on the purchases. I think that's such an interesting, clever concept. Yeah. I also am interested to see the evolution of uh, the Mirakamis and the Daniel Arshams of the world who are, are working with brands. You know, Jeff Koons just did that collaboration with Louis Vuitton for their handbags. Right. Um, I, I wonder if this is something that's truly here to stay because, you know, Warhol was not actually working with Heinz, right? right. But Daniel mm -hmm. Arsham is actually working with Heinz. And I, 
I will be fascinated to to see how this looks maybe a decade from now. We're already seeing, like you mentioned Louis Vuitton, but you're also seeing other luxury brands doing collaborations with up and coming artists. And it's actually elevating these artists to the main stage. So do you think you'll see more of that where, you'll, where you have these luxury brands that are searching for these up and comers and bringing them into the light? I do. I think that art has become part of our zeitgeist in a way that it, it never necessarily was before because of the digital proliferation of images. You know, just like music used to be very much a luxury product because you had to go hear a concert in person. You know, you'd get dressed up in your beautiful gown and you'd go to the, the opera house or the concert hall. And now I open Spotify if I want to hear Beethoven's Fifth, right? Um, art is, is very much the same way. You know, more people have seen the Mona Lisa online than they've seen it in person. Um, I, I think that we will continue to see a trend of the formal qualities of art potentially shifting in order to accommodate the limitations of a two-dimensional screen, which, which does make me feel sad in a way. Right. But I think that this is also, this, this idea of technology is potentially a new avenue for art to explore itself. Um, there is a very interesting new initiative called Super Blue uh, mm -hmm. that has been co-founded by Mark Limpshire of Pace Gallery, um, as well as Lorene Powell, the, the widow of Steve Jobs. Um, and their initiative is to create, you know, a next generation of immersive experiential art and a, a group of artist that is doing that well now comes out of uh, Tokyo called uh, Team Lab. And they they create these incredible digital environments that you walk into. I've and seen them. They're so imaginative and playful. And I, I think they do extraordinary work. And, you know, it, it's not, in a way, this idea of experiential art is, is the legacy of performance art of the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, and performance art never really took off because it's hard to monetize, Scott. You right. know, you, you can uh, buy and sell a painting many different times, but a performance is difficult. And so I think that art is going to look at how it can monetize these new kind of experiential endeavors. Um, and, and I know that that's certainly something Mark Limpshire has talked about doing um, and, and has a lot of potential. So what do you think the art market's gonna look like in the year 2030? You know, when you say 2030, Scott, it sounds so futuristic, but it's like, it's 10 yeah. years from now. Let's, yeah. What do you think's going to happen? I mean, what's your guess? What, what are you hoping for? I don't think that we will be having a conversation about online versus offline in terms of art buying. Um, I think that everything is, is going to be more or less for sale online. I will be interested to see how... Um, the very, very top dealers, you know, like Agosian uh, or David Warner, you know, shift with the times in that sense, you know, maybe their business is, is still going to be more or less the same where it's extremely heavily relationship driven, um, despite the beautiful websites. I think that auction houses will have to figure out how to reach the next generation of buyers and they're going to inevitably see the continued decline of certain categories like impressionists, which we spoke about as well as old masters. Um, but something that, that will never change in art is that blue chip art will always rise. 
great works of art from any period of time. You know, it doesn't matter if it's pre-Columbian, you know, it doesn't, right. it, it's not a work of art, but it doesn't matter if it's the T-Rex, right? Skeleton. Mm -hmm. uh, extraordinary things will always find its buyer. Um, and I, I think if there's one thing I know for sure about the art world that, that I would want to communicate to your audience of, of luxury executives and marketers, I've learned that rich people will pay anything for something that they really want and they will pay, you can't convince them to buy something that, that they don't want. And that sort of leads me to my final question, which is the luxury item question, which I ask all my guests. So if you were stranded on a desert island or it's actually a deserted island and you could have only one luxury item, what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of transportation or anything that requires mobile service. What would that one luxury item be? My answer might've been different a year ago, but I think these days, Scott, it would be a book. You know, just looking at something that's not a screen is such a luxury. And if, if I were on a desert island, I would definitely bring a good book with me. Any book in mind? Something that's going to have to keep you busy for a very long time. I, uh, uh, I, I might bring the multi-volume biography of Picasso uh, by John Richardson so that I can live vicariously through Picasso's extraordinary life uh, <laughs> while I'm stuck on my, my isolated island. That's a good one. I like that. Anything new coming up for Artnet in uh, 2021? that we should be aware of or that you can talk about? We actually have a lot of exciting things, not all of which um, I can talk about, but we are going to release our next issue of the Artnet Intelligence Report, which is our biannual magazine um, in March. So be on the lookout for that. Um, and I, I think, you know, for us, it really is about continuing to um, create an ecosystem that provides incredible goods and services to our clients. You know, that's how we've managed to survive for 30 years and become a second generation internet business. Uh, you know, Jacob Pabst, who is uh, the son of the founder, is now the CEO. And you don't see many uh, online businesses like that. Annie, thank you so much. Uh, you're a great guest. I learned a lot. I know the audience has learned a lot. And um, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Scott. That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time. <laughs>